Welcome to One Life Online, a podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church, Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a sermon on The Healthy Church, presented by David Davis. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through His Word, by His Spirit, and cause you to walk according to His will, by His grace. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read that, and then I'm going to uh, teach a bit about the church. The word church that we have in English comes from German, the Kirche, and then there are other, uh, other words that mean the same thing. In the Old Testament, they used the word kahal, which meant people called together by Yahweh, in the New Testament, we have the word ecclesia, which means God's called out ones, and it's his holy people. So we're going to be learning a bit about the church, but I want to start in this chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 11. Ephesians 2, 11. In this passage, Paul is telling us what we were before salvation and then he tells us what we now have after salvation. Paul is writing this from prison in Rome to the church in Ephesus, and he says, I want you to remember what it was like before and what you have now as believers in Jesus Christ. I love the church. Jesus died for the church. Now he died for us as individuals, but he died for us as a collective group of people that are called the church. So he's reminding us in this passage about our salvation. He says, therefore, Pastor Martin has told us anytime you see that word, what do we do? We ask ourselves, what is it there for? He says, remember, that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that's the Gentiles versus the Jews, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, but now, I'll tell you a bit more about that in a minute. But now in Christ, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier, dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man or one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, 
you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Wonderful truths. The book of Ephesians is one of my favorite books. Maybe you're not supposed to have favorites, but this is one of mine. I love this book because it tells us so much about what people were before they knew Jesus and what we should be after we know Jesus. Uh, there are challenges in this book. There are truths in this book. And it's just packed with what Jesus wants us to know about the church. So I want to start by telling you about the universal church, which is people all over the world are part of the church. If you know and love Jesus Christ, you are part of the universal church. And like it says here, we are people united around the saving work of Christ and his indwelling Holy Spirit. Those of us that know Jesus are part of this universal church. Uh, some of you know the Dateline is out somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. Starting this morning, somewhere 8, 9, 10 o'clock in the islands of the Pacific, moving across Japan into the, into the east and across the Indian subcontinent, God's people have already met. They're finished with church in those places. They've been worshiping God. You know, in sports events, sometimes you see the, you see the wave go from one side of the stadium to the other side. The church is doing that today. The church is worshiping God today, starting in Indonesia and moving across the continents to Europe, across the ocean to North America, across the Pacific again. All day long, God's people are worshiping him today. That is the universal church that knows and loves Jesus Christ. There is also a local church. We, One Life, is a local church. It is to gather people from this area, from this region, and we have a common purpose and some common doctrines. If you're a member, you've signed a piece of paper that said, I've read these points from the scriptures, and I agree with these. That is what binds us together in this local church. We have many metaphors in the, in the scriptures about describing the church. One is the body of Christ. We're not going to talk about the body, but Ephesians 1 tells us about that. Colossians 1 tells us about the body of Christ. Are you a hand, a foot, a neck, an ear? What is your function as part of the body? There's the temple, the house of God. It has a foundation. We've read about that. Who is the cornerstone? Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation on which this church is built. We talk about the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. At the end, I'm going to talk more about the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 tells us that. Revelation 19 also tells us that. We are a flock. We are his sheep. By the way, if you study sheep, you will come to realize that that is not a compliment. Sheep are awful dumb creatures. Why he calls us his sheep? One of the reasons I... I, I like, I don't, it's hard, but I like it because sheep need their shepherd. Sheep don't find their own food. The shepherd finds food. We lived in Pakistan and there were sheep everywhere. 
If you're close to sheep, you know they take a lot of care. Jesus knows that about you too. He wants to care for you because he's the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He loves you and he will care for you. We are his flock. Psalm 23 is a beloved psalm for many of us. He is my shepherd. He is our shepherd. We are his flock. John 15 tells us that the church is also a vine that has to stay connected. We are the branches and we have to stay connected to that vine. Now in, in the Bible, what is a biblical local church? We're gonna run through a couple of these things. What constitutes a biblical local church? Uh, there is a vision for every church. The vision is the glory of God and in that, it is what we are, it is being, that means abiding in Christ. That's one of the chapters in the book of John that tells us what it means to abide in Christ. So we have to be and we also have to do. Our job, if you are still alive today, and I see most of you are, you still have a job to do. You know what your job is? What are you to do as part of the church? You are to bear fruit. You are to let the Holy Spirit bear fruit in your life and you are to tell others about Jesus so that they come to know Jesus and that fruit remains uh, in the world. That is what we do. We have lines of authority in the church. We believe the Word of God. We trust the Word of God. We are guided by the Word of God. We also have the Lordship of Christ through the Holy Spirit. There are people in the world that claim to be followers of Jesus, but Jesus is not their Lord. He doesn't have full sway over their lives. That is part of what it means to belong to the church. We allow the Holy Spirit of God to be our controller, to live in our lives, to fill us with himself, and to guide us into what he wants us to do. There are offices in the church. We have. Pastor, elder, overseer. That's Pastor Martin, it's Godfrey, Pastor, uh, Dr. Jeff, it's myself. Hopefully others in the future will join being elders of this church. Uh, and we are responsible uh, to guide it from a spiritual point of view. Too often there's just one main person. Multiple churches have multiple elders as, as do we here in this church. We have deacons or a board that are responsible for the five purposes in a church, and we'll get to that in a second. We also have a treasure accountant. Somebody has to keep track of the money you give. Do you trust this church with your money? If you give, you do. Do we know where it goes? Yes, they tell us where it goes. We approve certain things and other things pastor does and, and the church office does, but we trust those people to take the money that we have given to this church for God's work and to use it in appropriate ways. There are what we call the four selves in a church. And if you look at that, self-governing. We decide what we do, how we do it, where we do it. We are self-supporting. The government doesn't give us money to be here. Members of parliament don't give us money, we give money. We support ourselves and what we do depends on that. We are self-reproducing. If you don't invite people to church, who's gonna come? That's part of our job. We bring others here to become part of this fellowship. I hope in 
six months time we are bursting out of this room if we are doing our self-supporting and our self-reproducing we will it's a good problem to outgrow where you currently are that means the church of Jesus is growing we are also self-correcting and self-correcting in 2nd uh, Timothy chapter 2 tells us what that is we are taught that as we are tried we are instructed in what is right we are rebuked what is not right you know one of the things that I don't think most churches do very well is accountability we belong to one another by the way so shouldn't I have some I hesitate to talk about rights shouldn't we have some right to stick our oar in your pond in your your life because if I see you not something doing that's not correct according to this book I have the right as part of this group to talk to you about what that is that is self correction and we have we have processes you know first John talks about confession how do you get right with God and with one another we confess to one another we ask for forgiveness that's part of the function of the church and then there's training in righteousness that's how to stay right it's dependence on the Holy Spirit it's reading this book it's it's growing in our faith the five the five purposes are the great commandment where we're taught to worship God love our God ministry is to love our unsaved neighbor and within the church the fellowship is to love our neighbor in the church have you ever told somebody else in this group I love you this group right here maybe after church you should wander around and five five or six people and say as part of the body of Christ I love you I love you look me up the Great Commission also tells us that evangelism preaching the good news of what Jesus has done for people is part of our job and then discipling them helping them to grow by the way one of the key parts of this church is the families in this church we cannot depend on this church alone to teach our children they do a good job here we have wonderful teachers they are teaching them from the word but in our homes we need to be doing the same thing telling them about Jesus reading the word to them pointing them to baptism what does that mean pointing them to what it means to follow Jesus that's part of our making disciples that make disciples that keep reproducing okay now if you'll go to this passage because the, the church is what we are about and in this passage now Paul is telling us he's been writing in the first part of chapter 2 of, of Ephesians we are saved by grace through faith so when we get to these verses he says remember that part of the process you don't deserve it it's by grace it happens through faith and and that's often hard to explain what is what is faith it's believing something you can't see do you still believe it can you prove it sometimes yes sometimes no but I still believe it 
So when he gets here, he starts by telling us, therefore, and then he says, remember. So now, they're, they're if you want to underline, I don't know if you underline in your Bible or not, but I do. It helps me remember some of the key points of what, what they're trying to teach us by contrast. So he says in this passage, remember at that time. Maybe your Bible says formerly, at that time, before salvation. Remember that condition. Paul says, don't forget what you were. And he says, remember at that time, but then he says, but now in Christ. Oh, underline those words. But now in Christ. I think, you know, I, I told you Paul was in prison when he wrote this. Can you imagine sitting, probably dark, probably not much light. He has something to write on. Parchment, I don't know if they had paper, if he had ink of some kind. I don't think he had a pencil. So he's writing. And, and he writes these things, what we were before Christ. And then he writes, but now. I get this feeling when Paul was writing this book, he thought, but now, oh my goodness, he said, what do we have in Christ? What do we now have in Jesus? What do we have as believers? I think he got so excited. I think he was dipping that pen and writing and writing and writing and writing and the rest of the chapter just flows out of his pen because he's so excited about what Jesus has done and he's saying, Ephesians, remember. This is what he did. So let's go and, and look at these, these verses uh, for a couple minutes. He said, you are separate. Separate from Christ. That word uh, literally means without. You were without Christ. Zero. Nada. Nothing. And no Christ, no hope of a Messiah. That's what we were. Now he's, he's contrasting Jews and Gentiles in this passage. There was a great divide between Jews and Gentiles in his day. Gentiles did not like the Jews. Jews did not like the Gentiles. There was no love lost between those two groups of people. Is that true today? That's true today in many parts of the world. I don't like those people. I don't like that tribe. I don't like that clan. Paul is saying we were without a possibility of a savior. Now, when, when I travel, I, my job used to take me all over the world when I was supervising our, our ministries in different countries. And when I'm separate from home, I used to feel like part of this job is not much fun because I have to leave Nana, I have to leave my son John, I have to leave places that's familiar, and I go to places that are unfamiliar, and I'm, I'm separate from all of that. The sense of this word to be separate that Paul is saying is not only are you separate from home, you don't have a home. You don't have anywhere that's home. It's not there. He goes on and he said, you're excluded. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. 
the Jews reminded Gentiles, uh-uh, not for you. There was no potential to become a citizen, to become a Jew. You couldn't do it. And, you know, it's, you're completely out. There's no process for that to happen. When, when I was a boy, believe it or not, I was a little bit athletic when I was younger. I could run and I could jump and you say, nah, you couldn't, but yeah, I could. Uh, and so we would, we would have teams in school. You know, you have recess and they'd say, okay, we're gonna have two teams. And, and you choose, so they line everybody up and they say, okay. They choose, you know, A, B, A, B, A, B. And you're looking and you're looking. Have you ever been picked last? How does that feel? Paul reminds us, you were excluded. You were alienated. Nobody wanted you on their team. That's pretty hard truth. He goes on, said you were strangers and foreigners. Muzungu. Are you all Mazungus? Yes, you are somewhere. Because when you go to another country that's not your nationality, you are the foreigner. It feels uncomfortable. You don't know the customs, you don't know the language, you don't know the, the is waving okay? Is this way, this way, this way? You, you're a stranger. Paul says, remember what it felt like to be a stranger. Now, they were strangers to what? The Gentile people he's referring to here. Because he's writing to Ephesians, and in that church there were Jews, and there were Gentiles. He said, you Gentiles, you don't have the Abrahamic covenant, covenant where God promised a land, he promised seed, he promised a nation to Abraham. When he got to the Davidic covenant, he said, you don't belong to that one either. That's a kingship and a rule that was coming. And he says, there's not even in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant doesn't even apply to you until the church. Until the church. Now the covenant applies. These are all points to the promise that the Messiah was coming but the Gentiles had no expectation that that applied to them. That they could have a Messiah too. You know why? Because the Jews never told them. They just didn't tell them. He says you have no hope. No, the, this, these couple verses, verse 12 and 13, are like stairs going down down, down, down. When he describes what we were like before Christ, no hope. No hope. We lived in Pakistan. I used to ask all my Muslim friends. We had lots of Muslim friends. We'd share the gospel with them. Not many believed. I'd, I would say to them, do you know you're going to paradise? 
In Pakistan, most Muslims said paradise. They never talked about heaven. They talked about paradise because they have a particular definition of what that is. I said, do you know you're going there? I hope so. That was the most positive answer I ever got from a Muslim. I hope so. Paul is talking here about if you are not in Christ, you have no hope. No hope. That's despair. That's you not even trying. You might just as well give up. You can't achieve this by yourself. Then he said, not only are you, you are without hope or have no hope, but you are without God. If that isn't the bottom, I don't know what is. To be without God in this world, even today, is a very scary place to be. Many people, the word there is atheo, which means the same word that comes from atheist. They do not have a concept of what God is. I met a man like this. There are many people in the world that are agnostics. They have learned the truth, they have studied the truth, but they deny the truth. That's a person who knows better, but they still don't believe. But an atheist doesn't have a concept of God. I traveled to Russia for about uh, eight, 10 years. And in an 18th floor apartment building, I met a man by the name of Gleb. He's a wonderful young man, strong, well-educated. And, and we were in his kitchen sitting at his table and um, my, my colleague that was living next to him in the apartment building had been talking to him about the scriptures and sharing Bible verses and giving his testimony. And, and he said, you, you people are very interesting. He said, you, you, you believe this book. Yep, we do. All of it? All of it. I said, I have staked my life and my eternity on this book. That's very interesting philosophy. I said, no, no, no. It's, it's so much more than a philosophy. It's not just sort of an idea in my head that feels good. This is truth. So I said, I believe if God tells me to do A, that I can do it. If I, if I know the result or not, I will do it. He said, let me illustrate something for you. So he, said, he goes to the edge of his table. He says, God says, I want you to walk to the edge of this table and I want you to step off. He said, you would do that. I said, if God told me to, yes, I would. He says, you're just stupid. Is our faith stupid? Do you know why it's not a dumb thing to believe in this book? because we know who wrote this book. The Sikhs follow the Granth. Confucius people follow their book. Hindus follow the Bhagavad Gita. There is no book like the Bible. None. 
Nowhere is there another book like the Bible. You can trust this book because we know who is behind this book. So when you are without God, you are at the bottom. But Paul doesn't stop there. <laughs> he said, you're far away, far away, and now, then he, he changes, but now you are near. You can, you can skip the far away one. Remember, this remember is, is both, it has a time dimension, that's the temporal word there, both tempor temporally, then and now, before there's time truth, after there's time truth, and positionally, before you were in sin, now you are in Christ. Are conjunctions important, theological truth? Very important. So if you read it in any language, when it has words like in sin, it means one thing. When you're in Christ, it means totally different. They're both true. But we need to think about what that means. These pieces of paper are just like brand new money. They stick together. So Paul is now writing, and this is where he gets excited, and I think, I think his whole spirit just kind of jumped in excitement at what we have because he says, now, now in Christ. By the way, we have future stuff to happen too when we get to heaven. Is heaven going to be better than this? Yes. But do we have all kinds of truth for us today? Yes, we do. Now, he says in Christ, what do you have? You are, you are brought near. Near is a warm, fuzzy word. It's kind of one of those, I like this word. You know, there's come, there's come, and there's go. Which is positive? Come is positive. Go is not so positive. Near is one of those words that when you come near... When, when you were hurting as a child, where did you want to go? Who did you want to be near? Mommy. When you were afraid, who did you want to be close to? Daddy. If they were holding your hand and you were near to them, you were okay. That's what Paul is saying. You are now near to God. He's close. He will comfort. He will keep you safe. And he's telling this, not only are you near to God, but you're near to Jews. That was news. Jews, you're now near to Gentiles. Gentiles, you are now near to Jews. Close. You ever sat too close to people? You know, in the world, there are different appropriate distances when you're talking to people. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but in, in the West, we tend to leave space. You're talking to somebody, and, and when you get up close like this, it feels very awkward. I went to Russia, same, same Russia, rode on their subways, and, oh, sorry, I'm moving around too much. The video is going to miss some of this, but... 
When I was on the subway, I was standing this close to a man facing me. And he loved garlic. That was not enough space for me. There was plenty of space for him, but not for me. But here in this, Paul is telling us now we are near to each other. Jews can sit near to Gentiles. Gentiles can sit near to Jews. He says that's what God has done. He's brought not only us near to him, but he's brought us near to each other. Were you, were you, uh, you realize this is also a church thing. Are we the same in this room? No, we are very different. Just look at the colors in this room. Look at the languages in this room. Look at the cultures in this room. Why do we belong to one another? Because of Jesus. Because of church. Being near to people is a church thing. God loves it. And he says, you became one new man. Mine says, one new humanity. And, and the word he uses here, whoops. The word he uses in this verse, verse 14, it says, for he himself. Do you know why he said he himself? That's a double, double whammy. He says, I want it to be clear who did this. He, Jesus, himself made us into one new humanity. And it says here, he brought peace. And in this passage, it says peace four times. Is, does he want us to get this point? Peace between Jews and Gentiles, peace between anybody that's different from you. He says, I brought it to be possible for you to like people that are different than you. I've seen this in the church many, many different places. That's why the church is so unique in the world. Because wherever it goes, it brings people together. It's an amazing thing. I was in Bosnia where the Croats and the Serbs were slaughtering one another. I was in a village where they destroyed the village of a Croat. He came to Christ. Two years later, he was helping refugees with a Serb right by his side. I said, how did that happen? Because Serbs hate Croats, Croats hate Serbs. He said, Jesus changed my heart. And I love to work with this man because it demonstrates to everybody out there what Jesus can do when he comes in and changes our hearts. He also says here in this that you were reconciled to God reconciled both of them, Jews and Gentiles, to God through the cross. Verse 16. Both Jews and Gentiles to God through the cross. He took away the hostility. He took the punishment. I'll tell you a story from growing up. I was not always a good boy. That probably doesn't surprise you at all. When I was growing up, I would disobey. And sometimes my father was home when it happened, sometimes he wasn't. And sometimes my mother would say, when dad comes home, he's gonna take care of this. 
So when I heard my dad coming home, what do you think I did? I would try to hide. My father would come in, sorry. <laughs> I, would, I would try to disappear. My father would come home. I would hear my mother telling him that Dave did this and I, he needs to be talked to. So my father would say, David. He used the come word. So I would go up to my father and he would say, um, did your mother tell you to do something? Mm -hmm. Did you do it? Do you know what confession is? Confession is saying, admitting what you did wrong. My father never let me get away with silence. He would say, tell me what you did. So I would have to tell him I disobeyed. And what did mother say would happen if you disobeyed? She said, you would deal with it. He says, okay, I'm gonna deal with it. What do you think I should do? That's when all the verses on forgiveness came into my mind. Well, you know, how about forgiving and forgetting? If he said it once, he said it probably a thousand times. He said, David, I love you too much to allow you to disobey. If you will learn to obey me as your father, you will learn to obey your heavenly father. And because that is important, I'm going to teach you to obey me. This was before all the, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. My father used to spank me. He may horrify you, but I learned obedience from my father. And he would whack me and it hurt and I would struggle. And after he spanked me, he would put, he was 6'4". He'd put his big arms around me and he would hold me. And I'd struggle, I want to get away. I don't want to be near him, I'm mad at him. And I would struggle and struggle and struggle and, and, and then I kind of settled down and he said, punishment has been meted out. Your disobedience is taken care of. And I realized something. Six, seven, eight years old, I realized something. I no longer wanted to be away from my father. I wanted to be close to him. Why was it okay now? Because now I was reconciled. My punishment had been given. And he said, we're now okay. So when this says here that we are reconciled to God, who paid for your sin? Jesus did. So when I take Jesus into my life and I become in Christ, all of a sudden I can look at God and what? I'm reconciled. He's not mad at me. He doesn't want to punish me. He says, it's been paid for. We're okay. 
But the reconciling is not just with God. It's also with us. You know, when we have communion, communion is clean house time for the church. We should never have anything between us, between anybody in this group. You have something that says, don't partake, go make it right. When you're reconciled, you come and participate. Why? Jesus says it's important to realize we confess sin goes away. I wish I'd brought a, a map here. I, I, I shared this in a, in a prayer meeting not too long ago. I'll be done shortly. I know a lot of preachers say that and don't mean it, but I hope it. Um, you know the verse in Psalm 103? As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed what? Our transgressions from us. Our sins why does he say east from west and not north from south? You know the world is round. We're not flat anymore. You know that. So if, if David had written in Psalm 103, your sins are as far away as the north is from the south. If you get on an airplane and you fly from South America and you fly up around the globe and you get to the North Pole and you keep flying in the same direction, where are you headed? You're starting to go south. Once you get to the North Pole and you keep going, you're starting going south. If you keep going around the ball and you get to the South Pole and you keep going in the same direction, you're now starting north. So if David had written, your sins are as far away as the north is from the south, you could find them. But he didn't. How? Did David know? Holy men of God were moved by the Spirit of God and they wrote the truth. Over 2,000, 3,000, maybe 4,000 years ago, David wrote, Your sins, get on an airplane with your sins. No, don't get on the airplane with your sins. Your sins are going to take your sins away. Your airplane's going to take the sins away. So you get on the airplane and you start going east, you'll get to Dubai, you'll get to India, you'll get to Bangkok, you'll get to the Pacific Ocean, you'll cross the ocean, you'll get to America, leave them there. You keep going, you'll cross America, you'll cross the, the Atlantic Ocean, you'll get to Europe, and you'll get back here, and you can keep going east for how long? And you're still going east. did David know your sins are so far gone when they are forgiven you will never find them hallelujah we sang about my sins are gone I've been set free what a wonderful truth Access to God in verse 18. Through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. By the way, this is one of the verses in the scripture where the Trinity shows up. All three of the Trinity in one short verse. 
for through him, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Access is something that's wonderful. Uh, if, if I wanted to go see President Museveni, you think I could just walk over to his house and knock on the door and would they let me in? No. I would have to have somebody take me in. Somebody that could vouch for me. And that's what Jesus did here. It says, Jesus takes us through these doors. We now have access because of Jesus right into the throne room of God. What a wonderful truth. We don't need a priest. We don't need anybody to talk on our behalf. We just need to pray and we gain access into the throne room of the King of Kings. This is one of the reasons Jesus was so angry. We haven't, in this uh, synthetic travel through the life of Jesus, we haven't gotten to where Jesus throws out the money changers out of the temple. The, the temple had taken on a whole slug of rules and regulations that were never intended to happen around the temple. You remember they had the court, they had the inner court in the, in the temple or the tabernacle, either one. They had the inner court where the priest only could go once a year. Then they had the court of what they called the court of the Jews. So any Jew could walk into the, into the courtyard of the temple or the tabernacle and he could walk right through the outer court and go right into the court of the Jews. Then they had a third court out here called the court of the Gentiles, foreigners. And when, I, when, a, when a Gentile would come in here, they could come in here, but they could not go into the court of the Jews. They could not go into the inner saint. Stay out. So when Jesus goes into the temple, that day when he walks in from Bethany, and he sees all these money changers and, and goats and camels and cows in the court of the Gentiles. They've turned this into a bazaar. It's a place of, it's a market. And Jesus says, remembering what Isaiah had wrote, had written sorry, in Isaiah chapter 56, my house will be a house of prayer for who? For all nations. Not just Jews, but all nations. On Pentecost, how many nations were there? Dozens of nations were there in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. 3,000 of them came to Christ when Peter preached. That must have been one humdinger message. But the truth of God and the Spirit of God changed hearts. And now they could enter, as believers in Jesus, they could enter not just into the court of the Gentiles, who cares if you go into the court of the Jews? I can go right into God's presence. That's access through Jesus. So he says you're also fellow citizens. And, and in this verse, there's another one of those little uh, verse 19, if you look, it says, consequently, in my chapter, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens. Consequently, because of all this that Jesus has done, the result is now you can come in to this place that is you. And he uses you here 
In English, it's hard to know, does he mean you singular, you plural? This one is you plural. All y'all, y'all, if you're from the South, y'all is a wonderful term. It just pulls people together. He is saying you, plural, can enter right in here. This is your thing. This is now your home, not just our home, but ours together. And now you belong to Jesus. Verse 19 also says, you are now members, you belong to Jesus. Now, if you'll, if you'll turn over a page to chapter 3 in the book of Ephesians, and with this illustration, I'm done. Chapter 3, verse 10. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to whom? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, through the church, the manifold, what? The manifold wisdom of God is known through the church. I've scratched my head. How does the church show God is wise? God's wisdom is shown through the church. You. God's wisdom is demonstrated to everybody in Uganda that he is wise. He uses the word manifold here. Now, uh, my wife has a diamond. You all know Julianka, who's back in Germany now. Julianka just got engaged recently here in our midst. What did Martin give her? He gave her a ring. What kind of ring? Did you see it? It was a diamond ring. You know what diamonds do? They kind of sparkle. If, you, if she were standing here going like this, it would be shooting off little... The manifold wisdom, the variegated, the beauty, the multifaceted beauty of the church demonstrates to the world that God is wise. Why? Because you aren't like each other. But you live and we gather together and we're like a family. He says only that can happen when God changes your heart. We are very different, but God says, exactly. It's beautiful in the church when different people love each other. He says, how will they know I'm wise? They will look at you. And he says, not only am I wise, is that demonstrated through the church, but if you go down uh, to verse uh, 20, he says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or think, according to his power that has worked within us, to him be, here he says, glory in the church. Is God's presence here? Do you see it? I don't see it but it is here. God's glory is in this place. Have you ever seen the power of the Holy Spirit change a heart? The glory comes down. 
And you know this is not of man, this is of God. When God shows up, we know he's been here. How did the, how did the people in, in the book of Acts know? It says about the disciples, they were different because they knew they had been with Jesus. So here in this, you know, the glory began way at creation. The glory of God came down and everything started. The tabernacle, the Shekinah glory came down. In the temple, when Solomon finally built the temple, it says the glory of God filled the temple and they couldn't go inside. At Jesus' birth, who noticed the glory of God first? Shepherds noticed on the hills outside of Bethlehem. They saw the glory of God at his birth. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened? The glory of God came down. When the world looks at you and me, they say you demonstrate God's wisdom and you demonstrate God's glory. But the one factor that I still want to mention is he looks at us and we as his church are his bride. I love weddings. Weddings all have the same result. So why do we like going to weddings? Two people come together and they make vows to one another and they go away and everybody's happy. Weddings are, are I love to watch people at weddings. So when, when the groom stands up in the front, he's looking, he's looking, if we had a wedding here, he'd look down the aisle here. Who would come in that door at the back? Oh, his bride. You know what he's, you think he's waiting for his father-in-law? Don't think so. He's waiting for that person that he's going to marry. I remember my wedding date almost 53 years ago. I looked down the aisle of that church. It was hot. Oh, it was a horrible hot day. I was sweating and blood was, or sweat was dripping off my nose. I looked down that aisle and I thought, That woman, that bride for me, for the rest of my life. <sighs> what a glorious day. Jesus is in heaven today. He is looking down the aisle of history and he looks at that door. Who does he see? He sees the bride of Christ. And God looks at that. God the Father says, Wow, my bride, my church, to be with me, God is saying, to be with me for how long? For eternity. You are God's bride. He is waiting for you as the church. We are going to be there there won't be any pushing and shoving. It's going to be a, that's got to be a wide doorway for all of us. In heaven, when God says, y'all come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we will start to enjoy eternity forever. Paul is reminding the Ephesians, remember what you were like? Think of what you are now and who is waiting for you in heaven.
God the Father. He's waiting. He's prepared a house. He's prepared a banquet. And he's waiting for his bride. And you're it. You're the bride. It's a wonderful truth Paul wants us to grasp. Let's pray. Father, we are so blessed as your children. We are so blessed as your flock. We are so blessed to be your bride. To think you even want to be with us is a miracle. But we thank you for the truth of this passage that shows us we demonstrate your wisdom, we demonstrate your glory, because we are blood-bought people who are in Christ. And we thank you for that today. Give us great joy in who we are in Christ. Help us to share it with others, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to God's Word today. Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705-581-369 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at One Life Church and subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission.